Good morning. If you'd like to turn with me, we're reading from the book of Luke, chapter 1, this morning. We'll start in verse 5 and uh, continue through verse 25 and then skip down to verse 57. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense, And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. And the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared." And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. And then skipping to verse 57. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy on her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by that name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. He asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered, and immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors, and all these things were talked about all through the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? 
for the hand of the Lord was with him. This is the word of God. We're spending the Christmas season meditating on some truths that are tucked away in classic Christmas carols. That we, if you're a Christian, and frankly, if you're not a Christian, but you've grown up in America, you've, you've heard many of these carols uh, all your life. Uh, and we're just going to focus on some phrases. Like, for instance, go tell it on the mountain, over the hills and everywhere. Go tell it on the mountain that Jesus Christ is born. Today, I'm just going to meditate a bit on that carol. Actually, these words, this refrain, it comes down to us from our African-American brothers and sisters from the time of their slavery. It is one of the most famous American spirituals ever to be preserved. That refrain is very old. Its source, as most American spirituals, its, its direct source is unknown. But the stanzas that we sang, the three verses, were written by John Wesley Work II. John Wesley Work II was a Nashville-born African-American composer and scholar who pioneered the compilation of American spirituals, compiling them, preserving them, and publishing them for the American public in the late 1800s and early 1900s. In 1907, he published this carol in his collection, Folk Songs of the American Negro. Now that refrain uh, that we sang, go tell it on the mountain that Jesus Christ is born, it's reminiscent of Isaiah chapter 40, which we read together earlier. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Those words are also, uh, the refrain is also reminiscent of Luke's remarks. Did you catch them? At the end of the reading today from Luke chapter 1, the thing that Luke said about what happened in the hill country where Zechariah and Elizabeth were from, they were, they, were, they were country people from the hills of Judea. And it says that after John was born and after everything happened with Zechariah and Elizabeth and the baby in the temple on that eighth day, Luke said, all these things were talked about through all the hill country in Judea, more mountain music 2,000 years ago. Actually, Zechariah, speaking of John the Baptist and their whole family, Zechariah's part in the Christmas story is interesting, I think. It's very relatable. It is a relatable subplot of redemption within the nativity story. It involves a man and his unbelief. It involves this man being disciplined by God, and it involves God restoring him finally. Unbelief, discipline, and restoration. A subplot of redemption in the Christmas story. I've observed that remnants of unbelief or doubt are more present in me than I am usually aware of or willing to admit. Spring up on me when I don't expect it and surprise me and sometimes make me feel guilty or ashamed of myself. Have you ever experienced that if you're a Christian? Have you ever kind of kicked yourself for missing an opportunity to share Jesus with somebody because you didn't know how to handle it or what to say or how people would think of the situation or of you? If you're not a Christian, have you ever kind of kicked yourself for just feeling like you can't seem to find the faith to believe? 
You want this simple faith, this, this basic trust that other people seem to have, and it just doesn't seem to come to you. And you, you struggle with that, and you wrestle with that. Let me ask you a question. I'll open it up for your comments very briefly. How does doubt or unbelief express itself in us? How does doubt or unbelief express itself practically in people? What do you think? Fear. Fear. Yeah, absolutely. What are some other expressions of doubt or unbelief? I'm sorry? Hesitation. Hesitation. Marge? Oh, sarcasm. Yeah. Sarcasm, and sometimes another brother and I have talked about how sarcasm can, can be, um, if we're not careful, it can be a deadly weapon, but sometimes it's a cover-up for uncertainty. Yeah. Isolation. Okay, isolation. Unbelief can express itself in isolation or doubt in isolation. Excellent. Any other thoughts? Yeah. Anxiety. You actually took the words right out of my mouth. You'll see in a minute. Yeah. Anyone else? How, how, does, how does doubt or unbelief express itself in the world or in people? Pessimism. Pessimism. Yeah. Pessimism. One more, maybe. Okay. A lack of peace. Hmm. Not trusting. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, excellent. Okay, I actually, uh, I had three ideas and, and they're very much in agreement with what you've all said. Unbelief can express itself in skepticism, kind of a scientific or intellectual skepticism. Um, for example, doubting that faith can coexist in a scientific world. If you, if, you know, as, as Stephen said in Nacho Libre, I'm a man of science. If, if you are a person of science, how could you possibly be a person of faith? Uh, skepticism is, is one way that unbelief expresses itself. There's another way, and somebody mentioned, Daniel mentioned it, anxiety. For example, doubting that God can provide for your practical needs, that he will provide for you and your family. Unbelief can express itself in offense. For example, doubting that God is good when you look at human suffering. Looking at a horrible world at times and wondering whether God really does care. Skepticism, worry, and anger are all forms of unbelief. Well, God has been dealing with people like you and me for forever. And watch it. Watch how he worked 2,000 years ago in Zechariah, who struggled with unbelief. And I hope you will see in Zechariah's story that although we may doubt God, he does restore our belief and our witness. And I want to talk to you specifically about Zechariah and how we see in him the presence of doubt in the Christmas story. Now, when I say story, I don't mean myth or legend, I mean history. There is a presence of doubt in the Christmas story that we really should meditate on, but there's also the presence of grace. So the presence of doubt in the Christmas story and how it's answered by the reality of grace. That's what we're going to look at today. Doubt in the Christmas accounts first comes through a believer. That's where we first see doubt. 
People, you know, Herod is famous for how he handled the news of a newborn savior. But Zechariah didn't handle it well either. It was time for Zechariah to travel up to uh, Jerusalem from the hill country in Judea where he lived because he was a priest. And there were way too many priests in ancient Palestine for the little work that needed to be done in the temple. So if you were a priest, you and your division went up to Jerusalem twice a year for a week. There, were too many, there weren't enough jobs to go around, so you had to cast lots for what your priestly duty would be when you were in Jerusalem. So they cast lots, and it turns out that Zechariah gets to do something of such magnitude and such honor that priests were only allowed to do it once in their lifetime, and some priests, the lot was never cast for them to burn incense in the most holy place. This is a big deal If Zechariah were an astronaut, this would be like getting to orbit the earth in the 1960s or maybe even be a part of one of the Apollo missions. This is what you train for. This is what you work for, what you live for. And now he's going to go in by himself to the holy place and offer incense at the altar of incense and pray on behalf of the people of Israel and pray to God as the incense went up for God's kingdom and righteousness, and justice, and salvation to come. This is the biggest day of his career. And at this moment, he goes in by himself, and while he's there by himself offering up prayers and incense, an angel, it's Gabriel again, Gabriel appears and says to him in verse 13, it's recorded, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. So on the most important day of his life, the most unexpected thing happened to Zechariah. But here's his response in verse 18. How shall I know this? For I'm an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. It's exactly what Abraham and Sarah said many, many centuries before him. See, he kind of takes the uh, skeptical approach here. And if you will, he's using inductive reasoning. He's saying, old folks don't conceive, Mr. Gabriel, and my wife, in all her life, in all our marriage, has never conceived. So he demands more proof than being visited by an angel. Apparently, that wasn't enough for him, despite the wonderful aspects of Gabriel's promise. Think about what Gabriel said to Zechariah. Elizabeth and Zechariah would finally have a son, and the shame of her barrenness in that traditional culture, finally, after decades, would be taken away from her. From them, they would have a child, they would have a family, and this boy, this boy was, to quote Gabriel, going to be great before the Lord, filled with the Spirit of God. This boy, when he grew up, was going to be compared to the likes of Elijah, I mean, this boy would lead a revival that would prepare Israel for its Messiah. So if you're good Jewish parents, this is a good career path for your kid. (laughs) Gabriel's news for Mary, if you think about what we talked about last week with Mary, Gabriel meeting Mary, Gabriel's news to Mary really did seem like coming from left field, or, or another way of saying that is Gabriel's news for Mary seemed quite out of place for a virgin teenager. She's minding her own business, living her life. God interrupts pregnancy, a young, betrothed, not yet married virgin to be pregnant. 
That is a huge problem. That is very awkward as the world sees it. And yet Mary believes. She believes, she accepts it, she embraces it as a model for all the faithful throughout the centuries. Gabriel's news to Zechariah seems to actually fit. It seems expected. It seems to fit his interests perfectly, his occupation perfectly. And for his wife, it's just the opposite of shame and awkwardness. For his wife, it would be joy and fulfillment and happiness. It's great news for Elizabeth. And for for Zechariah as a priest, it's the fulfillment of all that he lived for and worked for. And even more so, fulfilled in his own family. His very own child would be the fulfillment of everything that he and the priest had been looking for and teaching about and praying for for centuries. The coming Messiah. And you know, He looks at all of this, unlike Mary, and he doubts. A believing clergyman. The coming Messiah, three decades later, would actually say, and it's a good commentary on Zechariah and Mary, the difference between their response. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. I think the evidence of doubt, the evidence of human doubt, because look, this this reads nothing like a myth or a legend. These are real people with real struggles, with real concerns. It's authentic. It reads like a history. The evidence of human doubt in the nativity story should not surprise us at all. I think what should surprise us is how God responds to it. Grace permeates the Christmas story. Grace floods these Christmas accounts, especially the situation with Zechariah and Elizabeth. After disciplining Zechariah for his doubt, God restored him and increased his effectiveness, increased his effectiveness. His name is John, is what Zechariah scribbled on the little wax tablet when they all looked at him and said, what, you're John, like nobody in this family, like none of your relatives are named John. When I was born into an Italian-American family, they named me Brian. There weren't any Italian kids in Brooklyn named Brian. That's not a family name. So my grandfather kept calling me Bernie (laughs) for a little while. So his name is John. He scribbles on the wax paper. What, John? That's not a family name. And it says, Luke records that immediately Zechariah's mouth, when he scribbled that phrase, his name is John. His mouth was opened, his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. After doubting Gabriel's words, he lived in silence for nine months. Can you imagine that? I mean, like professional, like religious people, we love to talk. I cannot imagine being forced to be quiet for nine months. Nine months, he wanted a sign, he got one. The sign was, you're gonna be quiet now for nine months. Nine months of listening and waiting and thinking as a sign to Zechariah that he would have a son. And when he finally wrote those words on the little wax tablet, his name is John, 
That was a statement of faith. That was just the opposite of what he said to the angel nine months before. His name is John, scribbled on a wax tablet, was a statement of faith, agreeing finally with the angel's words, testifying that God was at work in the world, that God was at work in Israel, that God was at work in his very own family. And as his mouth opened, God's good news and praises poured out, Luke tells us. A culmination of nine months of silent waiting, prayer, and meditation explodes from Zechariah. And if you keep reading verses 67 through 79, I encourage you to do that today or later this week. Read the rest of of Luke chapter 1 to hear the words of his joyful witness. And go tell it on the mountain is exactly what Luke says everybody did after this thing happened on the eighth day when John was circumcised and named and his dad, Zechariah, declared the praises and promises and glory of God after nine months of being forced to say nothing because of his lack of faith. So I looked, all at, I looked at this and realized God is gracious. And through discipline, he restores our faith. And he actually gives us something to say something from him to say. Advent invites us to repent of our unbelief and trust in God's kindness to restore us. When I read this account last week of Zechariah, I had just missed an opportunity to share at least some aspect of the gospel with somebody. And because of the situation, I I was caught off guard and I didn't know what to say. And so I said, nothing, I said something, but not really what I wanted to say. And I went away kicking myself for it. And later that day, I read this passage and the Lord encouraged me. I read this passage about how God dealt with Zechariah. And, and I thought to myself, God is so gracious to me. God has been so patient with me. He has given me endless second chances in my life to serve him and to speak for him and to show people Jesus. Not perfectly, but, but I mess up, I'm unfaithful, I doubt, and he restores me because of his great love and kindness for me and his patience with me. He's given me endless second chances that I have never deserved. And then I thought to myself, wait a minute, what does John mean anyway? Have I forgotten? Did I ever know? Well, it turns out that the Hebrew derivative for the name John simply means the Lord is gracious. The boy's very name was a testimony to Zechariah that God was merciful to him. A constant reminder as he reared the child and raised him up that God would give him second chance after second chance. And as long as he was willing to listen to God and trust him, he would always have something to say. He would always have something to show the world. The Lord is gracious. What doubt and unbelief tend to do in the most simplest form? Doubt takes away your witness. I hope you see that in Zechariah. In a very simple sense, unbelief takes away our witness. A consequence of unbelief is that you have nothing to say. You have nothing to show. And for the believer... Unbelief silences you from sharing the amazing gift that God has entrusted to you. 
For those of you who are not yet believing, who are not yet Christ followers, who are struggling with, with Christianity, for the unbeliever, the consequence of unbelief is you remain silent with nothing of lasting significance to share. Now, you might be saying, I've got plenty to say, and I say it. I've got plenty to say and to show. I've got no problem talking and showing people things. Okay, well, be careful what you say if a loving God has not disciplined you yet. Zechariah was very old before he was silenced. Whether your doubt looks like skepticism or anxiety or anger, maybe it's a matter of perspective for you. Perhaps you are too hung up on your unbelief and not held up enough by God's kindness. Perhaps you are too focused on what you skeptically cannot accept, on what you worrisomely will not let go of, of what you are so angry about that you are unable to see how kind and gracious and patient and merciful God really is. The book of Romans tells us that it is God's kindness that leads us to repentance. Maybe you are too hung up on the object of your unbelief and doubt and not held up enough by the kindness of God. The serpent, the serpent in the garden was able to get the first couple hung up on doubt so that they were not able to testify to one another that God is gracious, that God's promises come true. And the serpent is still doing it to us. Have you allowed God's kindness to work in your life? Have you given it a chance? Or is it all skepticism and anxiety and anger. You must come to God in your doubt. That's what's counterproductive about Christianity. You have to come to God in your doubt. You can't wait until you perfectly believe. Or as one hymn says, you'll never come. Much has not changed in 2,000 years since Zechariah finally opened his mouth again. We habitually and persistently mistrust God. It's what we do best. It's what we do naturally. But think about what happened when the Messiah spoke to a young father who was distraught about his son, uh, a boy who had been troubled, spiritually oppressed his whole life. Um, the father desperately uh, found Jesus in public and begged Jesus to do something because the disciples were trying to deal with this kid and, and they, they couldn't, they couldn't do anything. And Jesus finally had to come in, step in and take care of it. And, and the father said to Jesus, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. And then Luke tell, uh, Mark, Mark's gospel tells us, Mark chapter nine, the man immediately cried out to Jesus and said, I believe, help my unbelief. That's not schizophrenia. That is honest human experience, just like Zechariah had. And rather than sending the father away for his unbelief, Jesus was gracious and healed the boy. And this really is a picture of the very essence of what Advent and Christmas are all about. That 
God's grace answers human doubt. The grace of God quietly appears in your life like like a tiny spark. And it patiently glows and it warms until a fire is burning that is unquenchable in you. And that's how Jesus worked. He came to us as a tiny baby, mostly unnoticed by the world. Few people got the news, but not immediately. Most of the world didn't know it immediately. He came as a tiny baby, patiently endured this human experience for three decades, submitted himself to all that we experience, and yet was sinless until his death and his empty tomb were like an unquenchable fire that was seen and believed and proclaimed to the ends of the earth, even until today. But you must be silent to embrace it. You must finally shut up and and behold the kindness and the grace of God. In silence, consider the manger baby. In silence, consider the Lord's suffering servant going to a cross, bearing the shame, carrying your guilt. In silence, consider the empty tomb and the risen king of the universe, son of God and son of man. If you cannot accept it all at once, just let it all grow in you. Let Jesus grow in you from a spark to a flame to an unquenchable fire. Let him take your unbelief. Let him confront your doubt. And let him fan it into a flame that becomes belief and faith. You may doubt him now, and you and I will probably continue sporadically to doubt him for the rest of our lives on this imperfect globe. But he will restore your belief. Not only will he restore your faith, my friend, he will give you something productive to do. He will give you something wonderful to say. Think about this, this Christmas season. Repent. Let Christmas be an opportunity for you and I to repent of unbelief and trust in the kindness of God to restore anybody who will come to him and trust. Trust that his words are true, that his words are true, that his promises are authentic. So that a day may come where you will be able to hear people say about you, say about me, not for our glory, but for God's glory alone, but people in Westminster and the county and where you work, people will start saying of you and of us and of Deep Run Church, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who publish peace, who bring news of happiness, publishing salvation, who say to the world, your God reigns. And who in a sense shout from mountaintops or hills in the Piedmont Plateau here, go tell it on the mountain that Jesus Christ is born. Amen? Let's pray. Our Lord, we are we are moved by your mercy. 
We are moved by your gentle patience with us. Give us faith to see discipline as the product of love, not the product of condemnation or hate. Help us to see that you, you long to relate to us as you related to Zechariah, that you invite us to come to you with our doubts and you transform us into people who trust you through much suffering and silence and patience, trust you. And finally, have something productive to say in life. Finally, have something worth showing to our neighbors and our relatives that you reign, that your son has not only come, but your son has risen and is coming again. Oh, Father, may our lives reflect what the ancient spiritual still reminds us of, that Jesus Christ is born and it is news worth telling. It is news worth singing. It is news worth shouting. We praise you and thank you for your graciousness to us. Amen.